Mind 10 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth, with hosts Chris Paxson and Rose Spiller. At Proverbs 910 Ministries, we are dedicated to taking out the trash of false teaching and replacing it with biblical truth. Welcome back. It's hard to believe that we're on the last episode of Deciphering Revelation and the last two chapters of the book. Well, actually, the last two chapters of the Bible. It is unbelievable. These 12 weeks have just flown by. And today, we're going to talk about something that most people, if not all people, have questions about at some point in their lives, and that is, what will heaven be like? Now that Jesus and his church's enemies have been destroyed, and they've been cast into the lake of fire for eternal, unending punishment, and the heavens and the earth as we now know them have been deconstructed, John gets a vision of what's next for Christians, a new heaven and a new earth. Let's start by reading Revelation 21 verses 1 to 8. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And to continue on, verse 5 says, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So Rose, the first question that most people have when they hear about the new heavens and earth is, is it totally new or is it the earth that we have now but restored? And so to answer that, let's start with what the Bible says about our bodies from the old earth that are resurrected and made new. I think we need to clear up a misconception that some people have. We do not transform into angels. That is not what it means when we get new bodies. (laughs) Thank you for clearing that up because that is a misconception. Angels are another type of created being. They're different than humans. If you read books about people who said they've died and gone to heaven and they see their dead relatives with wings or that those who have gone on have become angels, either they're making it up or they just have a really active imagination because nowhere, nowhere in the Bible Does it say humans ever become angels? Absolutely. I'm so glad you said that. But our old bodies are transformed into what they were supposed to be like without the effects of sin. And as Paul describes in Philippians 3.21 saying, Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. And then we see in 1 Corinthians 15 when talking about resurrected bodies, Paul uses illustrations of a seed having to die before it's transformed into something new. He also goes on to say that our new bodies will be imperishable or eternal. 
So getting back to our question about whether the earth will be totally new or will be renewed, in 2 Peter 3.10, we're told the stars, the sun, and the moon will be burned up. So there's major destruction of the heavenly bodies, and that's going to happen with fire. But it doesn't speak of total annihilation of the earth. And Romans 8.22 says that creation has been groaning because of the effects of sin and hopes to be set free from the bondage to corruption. Things like thorns and thistles that came after Adam and Eve sinned and the other effects that man has had on creation, including the living creatures who are longing for the freedom from death. So the current creation is waiting to be set free and that sounds more like renewal. But the wording in Revelation 21.1 seems to say that the old has passed away and everything will be made new. And that would fulfill the prophecy in Isaiah 6, which says, I created new heavens and a new earth. And yet again, there does seem to be some continuity between our old bodies and our new glorious ones. Like Paul's example of a seed dying, then transforming into something else. A seed looks nothing like the plant it ends up producing even though it's a continuation in a way of the seed's life. But it's dramatically different and so different, it's actually something new. And that fits with the picture of the earth after it was destroyed by the flood. Right. So either way, it's going to be so different that even if it is this present earth we're on right now renewed, it's going to be basically new. Okay, Rose, let's talk about something else that's important and dear to our hearts. Let's talk about the words, the sea was no more. So does that mean there's no more beach? I've heard people say that, and then they follow up with the fact that that's a depressing idea, which I have to admit does seem kind of depressing. It would, and since there's nothing depressing about heaven, I find it hard to believe there's not going to be an ocean and a beach because there's nothing sinful about anything God created. So why would he destroy it? What we did to the oceans might be sinful, but the ocean's not sinful. Jude 1.13 uses the word sea to mean wicked mankind, likening them to raging waves. And likewise, Isaiah 57.20 says the wicked are like the troubled sea. And there's lots of other examples of the sea being a place of unrest or turbulence, things like that. So it's likely this verse isn't saying that there's going to be no ocean or beach or not having a bay. It's talking about no more wickedness, no more sin. And that's reiterated in verse four. No more crying, no more pain, either emotional or physical. No more children or loved ones dying, no more animals dying, and not just pets, no more wild ones hit on the road either. None. I am looking forward to that, all of it, including my own sin being gone. So this is a new home, probably with a beach. (laughs) And it's a holy place, though, where God will reside. It's the heavenly home of Christ and his bride, which brings us to the holy city, the new Jerusalem. This isn't a literal city coming down out of heaven from God. This is the church. Remember in the episode, You Want Me to Eat What? In Revelation 11, John measures the temple of God, the place where God resides. And we talked about how that's a picture of God's people. God resides with his people, alluding to Ezekiel 40 to 48 and 1 Corinthians 3.16, which says that we are God's temple, the place where the Holy Spirit resides. Well, here's that same imagery again as the holy city. Verse 2 says this is the bride adorned for her husband Jesus. When we get to verse 9, we're going to see this again, and we're going to talk more about why this is not an actual city. And I love verse 3 because the best part is that 
Just like in Genesis before the fall of man, it says that God will dwell in the midst of his people. We'll be his people and he will be our God. Do you know how many times the Bible talks about this very thing? This is the goal. Yep. To enjoy God forever. That's the covenant promise. From the beginning, the pattern for the kingdom of God is God's chosen people in God's perfect kingdom, under God's rule, with God's blessing, in a perpetual, ongoing Sabbath rest of enjoyment in His presence. Exactly. Going on in the text, we see again that God is making all things new in this new world. And there's a reminder here for the present. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The one who conquers will have the blessings of the new life, but the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, and all the wicked, their portion, their inheritance, will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Rose, the wicked will remain in an unregenerate state forever. This is a warning to people who renounce their faith or who compromise their beliefs because of the pressure of the beast or the seduction of the harlot. Unbelievers suffer a second death in the burning lake. The wicked have a second death in the lake of fire means their resurrected bodies will stand before the judgment throne and then be tormented in hell forever. And contrast this to you will be my people and I will be your God. There's one place in the Bible in Hosea that God tells Israel, you are not my people and I am not your God. That, the verses you just read and many other parts of scripture throw the idea of universalism. In other words, everybody gets saved in the end which is touted by Rob Bell and others right out the window. It surely does. So let's continue reading. Uh, We'll start at Revelation 21, verses 9 to 26. And this is about the new Jerusalem. And it says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And continuing, starting at verse 15, And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall. 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each of the gates were made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. 
and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. We said a couple episodes ago that when we get to chapter 21, we would see the bride of Christ contrasted with Babylon, the counterfeit bride. Well, here she is. As we said, some take this to be a literal city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Futurists, or the left-behinders, have a very tedious and complex chronological view of Revelation. That's where a lot of the sensationalized stuff we hear comes from. They believe that Jesus comes secretly and raptures the church off the earth at some point. Then all the bad stuff we've talked about in all the previous episodes happens within a seven-year period they call the Great Tribulation. And after that, they believe Jesus returns really, which is a third time, to reign for an actual thousand years in Jerusalem to do something special with ethnic Israel during those thousand years. They believe the new Jerusalem in chapter 21 is a city that hovers above the earth, and that's where the raptured church dwells. But there are some problems with that. Like we also said in a previous episode, that would mean that God has two sets of people, the church and ethnic Israel. But the Bible talks about God having just one people group, the church, which includes any Jews who are saved by faith along with any Gentiles that are. The Bible talks about the unity of the Jews and Gentiles in Ephesians and lots of other places. And Revelation 21 never talks about a city hovering over the earth. I mean, what would a hovering city have its foundations in? And later we see a river runs through it. If you're taking all this literally, what would that mean? That it's pouring out on the earth? And... Honestly, that's just the beginning of the problems. This interpretation has so many loose ends and things that don't make sense or line up with other scripture. It's just crazy. Exactly. And unbelievable. This is the prevalent view of Revelation. It is because of some things. Yes. Um, Maybe because it's so sensational. Yeah. I think that's why people like it. The thing is, is the Bible's pretty sensational the actual way you interpret it. Yeah, it is. We don't need to add to it. If this stuff that we've talked about is not sensational enough for you, I don't know what will be. No, me either. And another take on the New Jerusalem by some is for it to be a literal view of what heaven will be like. The pearly gates, the streets of gold. We hear this talked about in gospel songs, hymns, sermons. And there's a guy named Randy Alcorn who has a book about heaven, and he talks of this as a literal city. He calls it heaven's capital city where God dwells. Kind of like Washington, D.C.? Oh, yeah. Well, I I hope not. (laughs) If this is a literal city in heaven, I hope it's not in Washington, (laughs) D.C. In many, many ways, and I won't go into how many. Yeah. But uh, Randy Alcorn says that God's people dwell there with God, and the place is huge. But there are other cities around the New World, too, and that we'll be able to go in and out of these open gates to explore and visit family and all this stuff. But let's go back and read what verse 9 of the chapter says again. It says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. 
that's how the description of the new Jerusalem starts at. So this is the church, the bride of Christ, not a literal city of any kind. Right. It's the church, God's people who've been made perfect and radiant and whose lives have been secure with Christ in heaven this whole time. Our lives have been hidden or in other words, kept safe in heaven, as Paul says in his letter to the Colossian church, where in 3, 4, he finishes with the words, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Right, and here we see that the church has come down out of heaven from God. And then we get this very symbolic picture of the perfected people of God. We talked about her a little bit when we contrasted her with the prostitute city Babylon a few episodes ago, like you mentioned. But there's a little bit more to say about her in this passage. Like, we're going to have the glory of God. It's exactly what we were created to do. We were created to be God's selim, or in other words, his idols, representing him to the world. Here, we're going to reflect him and his glory perfectly, clear as crystal. No imperfections distorting what God is like any longer. The book of Revelation starts with the seven churches with all their sinful imperfections. Even the good ones have imperfections. Revelation ends with the glorious perfected church who's been made holy. We're being transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit. God living in us, washing us, and perfecting us with the word. Like the picture of the husband and wife in Ephesians 5.26, so that someday this bride is what we are. Let's explain some more of this symbolism. We won't have time to go into every aspect because there's so much, so many allusions to the Old Testament. But let's talk about a couple. First, we see that the city has high walls and angels at its gates. This signifies that we are safe. There won't even be the possibility of attack from our enemy Satan and his minions or our own sin because we don't have a sin nature anymore. In Revelation 11, God's people, the temple, were safe as far as their salvation went, but they were vulnerable to attack from the enemy. Here, in the new heavens and earth, we're safe for eternity, and we have absolutely no vulnerability physically or emotionally. And there won't be another fall of man that starts this whole process over again like happened in Genesis because all traces of sin are in hell for eternity. The gates, they bear the name of the 12 tribes and the wall of the city is laid on the foundations of Christ and his 12 apostles. This is the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament coupled with the 12 apostles, signifying the complete church comprised of all the Old Testament believers and the New Testament believers. Again, this shows one people of God, not two separate groups of people. And the city is measured just like back in Ezekiel's vision. But this time, it's not being measured by some kind of reed pulled out of the marsh, and it's not a cheap yardstick from the dollar store. It's measured with a rod of gold. That It's showing something much more glorious. And this part is pretty interesting. The city is in the shape of a cube, 12,000 stadia. Now, many take that measurement and translate it into 1,380 miles or you know, 2,221 kilometers, and they talk about how big this quote-unquote city is. But remember, this is the church. So it's people this measurement is about, not a city. The angel also measured the wall, which we said signifies protection, 144 cubits. Both of these numbers are multiples of 12. Remember, what does 12 mean symbolically? The people of God. This is the complete number of the people of God, and they're completely and totally protected. 
And we mentioned 12 stones here, and it might have been a little tedious listening to, but these 12 stones correspond, although some of the names might have gotten changed in translation, to the 12 stones in the high priest's breastplate that had the names of each of the tribes on them. The high priest went into the Holy of Holies where God resided above the Ark of the Covenant. He did that once a year to make atonement for sin. There's only one other place in the Bible that's a cube. Chris, that's the inner sanctuary in Solomon's temple where the Ark of the Covenant was. So this all ties together. Right. This is all a picture of God residing with all of his people. Exactly. And that leads us right into verse 22 that tells us the city has no temple in it. There's a lot to say about this, more than we could possibly cover here again because there's so much. But in the Old Testament, the tabernacle or tent of meeting uh, was the place where God would be in the midst of his people. In the New Testament, John 1.14 tells us the word became flesh and dwelt among us, meaning Jesus came and quote-unquote tabernacled with us. There's no need for a temple in Revelation 21. Why? Because God the Father and God the Son are the temple, as it told us. And the New Jerusalem, God's people, are the temple of God the Holy Spirit, as we already said from Ephesians 2.22. The main point is we will be abiding with God. There's no separation anymore. No temple for sacrifices, no temple with a holy of holies hidden behind some kind of curtain. And we don't need the sun and the moon anymore. Does that mean there won't be any sun or moon or stars to enjoy in the new heavens earth? Who knows? But the important thing to remember is that the sun and the moon and the stars were created to govern days and nights. They governed time for us. That's why God created them. But we're here in God's presence for eternity. Time has no bearing in eternity. The glory of God is the source of the light. And Jesus shines that light on his bride who radiates it through her purity. Yeah, this is a picture of what the Israelites were supposed to do. Shine their light out to the nations to draw them to God. And we got glimpses of that. Like when the Queen of Sheba came to Solomon's temple because she had heard of the greatness of God. But there were only glimpses of how it should be because God's people sin and don't shine his glory now. That won't happen in the new heavens and earth. As verse 27 says, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And notice that there's no night and the gates are never shut. There's no sin, no fear, no need to buy guns or stock up on ammunition like a lot of people are doing now. It won't be needed. We might be needed now, but it won't be needed then. No worry about the police being defunded because we don't even need police in the new heavens and earth. We need them here and now for sure, but we won't need them then. Absolutely. One takeaway from this passage should be that we should be caring for God's people. In some ways, Rose, I think we get too focused on outsiders. Don't get me wrong. We are definitely supposed to spread the gospel, and we should be doing that while helping meet their needs. But it's really, really important to keep in mind the purposes of the church and what the body of Christ is supposed to be doing here and now and why we spread the gospel. We're to spread the gospel in order to reach all of God's elect. We're not just here to help make any and all people's lives better while they're here on earth. Without including the gospel message in our helping, what we're doing isn't any different than the pagans are doing. We talk about this a little bit in our book, No Half Truths Allowed, Understanding the Complete Gospel Message. So we should be careful about what we're busying ourselves up with. 
We can't neglect the fact that there's an aspect to taking care of our spiritual brothers and sisters that's supposed to take priority and often gets overlooked or put aside because we're busy trying to help people. Galatians 6, 9-10 says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. There's a priority there. That's right. And those listening couldn't see me, but I was nodding the whole time you were saying that, Chris. Yeah, I mean, we forget about that sometimes. We do. We're so focused on reaching outsiders, reaching the unsaved, and we neglect the church, and we're supposed to right. love her. So help others, but make sure you spread the gospel while you're doing it. John Piper has a saying, I think it's on a plaque, it was on his mother's wall while he was growing up, and it said, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. So getting back to your main point, Chris, doing good to everyone and especially to those in the household of faith, it's something we should take seriously. We're not just here to help reach unbelievers, although that's part of it, but it's not the only reason we're here. John Calvin said, there are duties which we owe to all men arising out of a common nature, but the tie of a more sacred relationship established by God himself binds us to believers. Helping our brothers and sisters in the faith is going to take time. It means physical need-based help, but it also means building them up in the faith by learning our Bibles correctly so we can help them learn. It means praying for them. It means checking in on them to see how they are. It means gathering with them for Sunday school and church and any other opportunities to meet. It means using our spiritual gifts in our local church because Those are the people God intended us to use our gifts for. That's totally right. It doesn't matter which of the verses you pick about using our spiritual gifts, Ephesians 4, 11 to 12, 2 Timothy 1, 6 and 7, 1 Corinthians 12, 7, 1 Peter 4, 10, 11 or others. They're all for building up your fellow brothers and sisters. And let's not forget the one we hear all the time at weddings, 1 Corinthians 13, the love passage. This is about loving the body of Christ, and it's only one of many passages of Scripture that talk to us about how to treat our spiritual family. And we talked about that verse in another episode. I don't even remember which one, but there's nothing wrong with using it in the context of a marriage. But you're right. It's about how we treat the others in the body of believers. There's a lot of verses about the New Jerusalem that are difficult to wrap your head around. There's a lot of verses in the Bible that are difficult to wrap your head around. Yes. We can't fully understand all the intricacies that have to do with the temple and the stones and all the Old Testament references in this chapter, but we hope we've given you the general ideas at least. Yeah. I think it's beyond our comprehension that we could ever understand how glorious this will be. I agree. First of all, there's nothing anything like, you know, nothing like this on earth. And second of all, it's infinite and we're trying to understand it with a finite mind. Yep. Okay, so we have one more chapter. Revelation 22. I'll start by reading the first five verses. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. 
They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. So Chris, how much do you think about heaven? Well, more lately than at other times. (laughs) But, you know, we should probably all think more about heaven than we do. Christians should long for heaven. Why wouldn't we? Who doesn't want to live without fear, without loved ones dying, without anxiety and depression, without any of the struggles in our life whatsoever because all traces of the curse are gone. And I think the older you get, the more you long for it and think about it. It's hard at 20 when you've got your life in front of you to really dwell on it. But certainly as I get older, I think about it. Me too. And everyone should want those things that you talked about. Everyone does want those things. I don't think anybody is totally satisfied and content here and now. Otherwise, we wouldn't be constantly looking for the next antidote to fix whatever our problem of the day is. But in some ways, for many of us, things are relatively good and we're content. Like I said, especially if you're younger or if, you know, life's going pretty well. But it's my guess that if we thought about heaven more, we'd long for it more. I know I do. Right. We might actually thirst for it, as the scripture says. Yeah, that's exactly right. So let's go back and talk about the Garden of Eden for a minute. When God created everything, it was good. There was no painful toil. Work was fruitful and brought about good things. There was no death. Adam and Eve were created and placed in the garden. They were given dominion over the earth to rule it. And for a while, they did it righteously. They used the land rightly, took care of the animals the way they were supposed to. We have no idea how long. But there was no discord in their relationships, not between Adam and Eve or between them and God who was there with them. Genesis 2, 9 to 10 says, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant in his sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. Here in Revelation 22, 1 to 5, we see a similar description, but one thing is missing the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? Because there won't be any evil anymore. There's only life. Okay, let's continue with the rest of the chapter and the rest of the book. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and our brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. You want me to read for a while? Yeah, why don't you? Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. 
I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Rose, these words, trustworthy and true, are reiterated, guess how many times in the last two chapters? I'm going to take a shot and say seven. You're right. <laughs> seven. There are so many sevens in this book. And these words are completely, completely true. For the rest of the chapter, there's some chiastic structure, meaning the main point of the section is in the middle, verses 14 and 15, which also happens to be the seventh beatitude. We're going to work our way into the main point from both ends of the verses that surround it. Do you want to start? Yeah, I'll start. The second part of verse 6 and 7 and verse 20, because they coincide, tell us that when these things in Revelation will happen, when are they going to happen? Soon. What's soon? I mean, it's been 2,000 years. Well, scripture says a thousand years is like a day and a day is like a thousand years. So it's only been a couple days. <laughs> but every day we get closer, no doubt. Jesus could come at any time. He could. Okay, the next is verses 10 to 11 and 18 and 19. And they tell us about the words of the prophecy of Revelation. They say, don't seal them up. People need to hear these words. And verses 18 and 19 say not to add to these words or take away from them. Something that harkens back to Moses who said the same thing in Deuteronomy 4 and Deuteronomy 12. Revelation is the last word from God. There is no new revelation, no new prophecy. Not that God isn't speaking to his people. He does this through the scripture and the indwelling Holy Spirit. And when he does, he is reiterating what is already written in scripture. He's not telling anyone anything new. That's right. He's not giving Sarah Young a whole new revelation to share with people in Jesus' calling. Absolutely. And he wasn't given those tablets or whatever that started the Mormon church. That's right. Okay, verse 12 says Jesus is coming to us, bringing his reward to his faithful servants and punishing every evildoer. Verse 17, which correlates with verse 12, says the spirit and the bride say, come, let the one who hears say, come, and the one who is thirsty come, and the one who desires the water of life drink freely. This is a command to the church to spread the good news of the gospel. It's the free gift of God that we're to spread the news about so that Jesus' thirsty sheep hear and come and drink from the life-giving water. And verse 13 and verse 16 tell us without doubt who Jesus is. The great I am, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. Okay, so we've looked at the beginning and the end of this passage, and they all point to the middle, as you said, Chris, the seventh beatitude, verses 14 and 15. 
And I'll read it again just to refresh us. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by its gates. But outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. And what else can be said? We live in a broken, sin-cursed world. Man sinned in the garden and sentenced everything to death. But God has provided salvation. He does all of the saving work himself. It's a free gift. So our question to you listening is, what are you going to do with it? And we'll end with some words from the fourth chapter of Hebrews. God's promise of entering his rest still stands. So we ought to tremble with fear that some of you might fail to experience it. For this good news, that God has prepared this rest, has been announced to us. So if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Come to the life-giving waters of Jesus. Confess to God that you're a sinner and have no way to save yourself. Accept the free gift of salvation offered by Jesus through his death on the cross as payment for your sin. Come to the water without money and be saved. Amen to that. If you have any questions or comments about this episode or about this series, or if you have questions or need help understanding the gospel message, you can message us through our Proverbs 910 Ministries Facebook page or contact us through our website, Proverbs910Ministries.com. Have a blessed day, everyone.